the sleeper and the bust. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper and the bust. The sleeper and the bust. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm very excited to be back for a special edition of the show. I'm not only joined by Rotograph's editor, Eno Saris, but also six-time Tout Wars champion and author of the book, Winning Fantasy Baseball, Larry Schechter. Larry, thanks so much for coming on, and congratulations on publishing your first book. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, of course, first question that we're all wondering is what made you actually decide to write a book? I think you mentioned in there that you were inspired by you writing those strategies of champions essays from 2005 to 2007. Is that really where you first came up with the idea of turning this into a a full length book? Um, Yeah, it really is because writing, you know, writing, trying to write a 600 word uh, article about how I won Tout Wars in a particular year is really impossible uh, because I mean you, 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 I just can't say it that briefly. So when I was writing those, it was kind of frustrating uh, to try to say something in 600 words, and at the same time I was kind of thinking, well, I don't really, really want to give up my strategy anyway. So uh, I wrote, you know, maybe like 600 words of general stuff, and maybe there was a tidbit or two of helpful information in there somewhere. But basically, I thought they were kind of useless. But that kind of started me thinking that you know, if I was really going to write my strategy, it would take a whole lot more than 600 words, and I was would you know to go through the whole thing from beginning to end would take a book, and that's where I kind of where I got the idea, and it started to appeal to me the actual idea of doing that. One reason is I was wanting to write a book, and I finally had something that I felt qualified to write about. So that's where it all started. Yeah, well, I mean, for the first time, I had to write a Strategies of Champions essay, and I had no idea what to write in that, because do I outline everything that I do in preparing for a draft and all my strategies in season? So, yeah, to kind of get down a strategy to such a, a, a small piece is obviously difficult, and so I understand wanting to kind of expand that out into uh, a really long piece. How long did it actually take you to write the entire manuscript? Uh, well, it took a long time, but a lot of it was on and off. You know, when I first got the idea and, you know, I, I kind of thought about it for a while and I jotted down some notes here and there in case I ever decided to do it. And it got to a point where I thought, well, let me, let me write a, a sample chapter or two and show it to some people and, that way I was going to determine, do I feel like I really have a book in me as opposed to like a long magazine article? And I would show it to a few people and get their opinion and say, do you think this is any good or is it a bunch of crap? So I did that. I wrote a couple of chapters and I showed it to a few people and I got really good feedback and I felt like, yeah, I definitely have a book in me. And then even then it was like on and off for a while. And so, the, I mean, the whole thing started back in like 2006 or something like that, 2007. Um you know, so it took a long time. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, just based on how much information you crammed in there and how many years you went back and talking about the 
CD, what is it, CDM leagues? Yeah, CDM. Yeah, I was trying to think of the initials, what the exact letters were. The CDM leagues, yeah, so you went really far back. But one of my favorite chapters, or perhaps my favorite, was early on when you were talking about how every player has a value and the best strategy is to draft with the goal of maximizing this value. And that's exactly how I play, so I'm in total agreement. And yet, all the time, we hear, we watch in drafts about fantasy owners seemingly so willing to overplay, uh, overpay for players. And then they say, oh, I really wanted him, and I didn't want somebody else to get him, so I, I took him around early, or, or I, I spent an extra $3 over my value because I really wanted him. Why do people do this if it seems so obvious that you need a $320 team for 260 a $260 team for 260 is not going to win the league? So why does this happen, do you think? You know, I have no idea because, you know, to me, it's like common sense. It's yeah. like if, if a, you know, if a stock is selling on the, the stock market for $40, you know, I don't want to pay $45 for it. I want to pay 40 or ideally less. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, if somebody's worth $20 and you pay $22 for them, you're losing money. Um, but there's a lot of that thinking that, you know, the stars go for a premium and you got to get a first baseman who hits 40 home runs and you got to pay for that and there's position scarcity and there's all this other stuff that, you know, people justify to spend money. And it's just, it's, you know, it's, I just think it's dumb. And most of it, you know, there's, you know, there's certain exceptions, you know, as I, I show in my book, there are certain exceptions where I'm willing to pay, overpay a little bit for something. But in general, you know, it's just nonsense. Yeah, you know, the thing that I came away with, uh, you know, I, I can't help but sort of compare it to, to my own philosophy when playing. The thing that I came away with was discipline, um, you know, and just really being disciplined because, you know, we can always fall in love with a player, always think, you know, of a reason to pay a dollar or two extra. Um, and, you know, I, I am sort of interested in those exceptions. Um, you know, when does it make sense to, to pay price? Uh, when does it make sense to, to, to pay the exact uh, value that you think the player is worth? Well, the, the biggest exception is that you have to spend money. If you just are holding out for bargains, too much, and you're pa you know you're passing on all the higher dollar players because they're not going for a bargain. You know you get in a situation where you leave twenty dollars on the table, and now you know you've really hurt yourself. So spending you know full price or maybe even a dollar over um, for a high high value player just so you're spending some money, you know, would be one exception. That's interesting because a little corollary of that that was that I was thinking of was. Um, you know, my my dollar values never go as high as the as the highest players, um, and I'm always struck with the decision. You know, what do I do about that? Uh, do I just stay out of the bidding of basically the top ten players because everyone else has added like a premium to them, or you know, what do I do? So I always end up trying to find a guy near the end of the back ten, at uh, the top ten, where I just pay price. Um, and you know, just get into that discussion, get a possible top ten player, uh, but don't you know overpay for him. So sounds yeah, like I, somewhat similar. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, with the with the top players, with so many of them are are being overpriced. If you can find one at at fair value, that's fine. Um, and I you know I, I try to identify in advance 
where I might be able to find that. I look, one of the things I, I go over in the book is a lot of this is preparation. I, as I spend a lot of time preparing in advance, and I look at what values other people have uh, placed on the player, you know, like some of the some of the well-known magazines and websites. I look at their prices and I see, okay, here's a guy that I've got at thirty dollars, and everybody else has him at thirty dollars. So maybe I can get him at thirty dollars, and then here's these other ten guys where I've got him, you know, at thirty something, and everybody else has him three dollars higher. So I try to identify where I might be able to get the guy, you know, without having to overpay. Also, I'm looking at players in say like the twenty dollar range. If you can get you know, three $20 players for a good price, that's just as good as getting, or that's better than overpaying for a couple of $30 players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back to paying for the top players. I know personally in my home draft, or my home auction, every year the top players will, it's a guarantee they're going to go well above my price. So I think maybe in, in an effort to make sure that I actually spend all my money, I think the strategy might be that, yeah, I'm going to have to overpay, but overpay less than everybody else. So if everybody else is paying $38 for a $30 player, I want to pay $32 for a $30 player. Right, that's fine. And the other, the other factor is that there's a difference of opinion. So, you know, it's not like everybody agrees with your prices who's worth, you know, $30 or $38. So the other place that you're going to look is you know, maybe there's a player you think is worth $33 and everybody else only thinks he's worth $30. So even if they're willing to overpay, that kind of puts it into the price range that you think is a fair deal anyway. And again, that's one of the things I discover when I'm looking at, in advance, I'm looking at um, other values, you know, where I, I think somebody's worth $30 and I see all the websites or whoever kind of only think he's worth $28, so I think, okay, here's somebody where I might get a good deal. Yeah, and just to clarify what you said, and this was actually my other question, and for those, obviously, who haven't read the book, you basically take the values from other drafts that you see published, and you add it to a spreadsheet, so you'll see that Derek Jeter, in this draft went for $23, and this one $25, and this one $26, and you may, you'll make a whole spreadsheet. And all I kept thinking when reading this book is, oh my god, no wonder why he's won so many times. He out-preps everybody. The amount of time you must spend on preparation is, I can't imagine somebody spending more time on preparation than you. So it makes sense that you've been so successful, but in this specific spreadsheet, adding all these values, how long does it actually take you to add the values for every player from all these different leagues? Well, it's not it's not leagues. Um, other other than the fact that like I'll, I'll be in the labor auction, so then when I go to the tout wars auction three weeks later, I know what the prices were at labor. But other than that. Um, I'm taking them from sources like, for example, the Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine, the Roto World uh, online draft guide, the um, Baseball HQ website, you know, and maybe some, you know a few other magazines. Um, I'll take them from there, and that gives me, a, you know, a decent idea of what other people are thinking. And it doesn't take that long to do it. Um, you know, it's like that's something I can I can like. You know, print out the numbers from Roto World, 
and as I'm watching TV or something at our, at our event, so it's really not that time-consuming. Some of the stuff I do is time-consuming. That's not so bad, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a definitely a great idea because you could easily identify players that you think might be undervalued or overvalued. So that's something that I definitely took away as being worthwhile preparation that I've never done before that I, I might want to do uh, moving forward. But also, I wanted to discuss auction strategies and when to nominate a cheap player you want. And what I'm thinking is that the only thing that is predictable about an auction is that it's going to be unpredictable. Because every time I identify somebody that I think I'm going to be able to get for cheap, and no matter when I nominate him, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, he can end up going over value if I bring him up early. I think maybe I'll bring him up late when people are out of money, but it ends up he's one of the last good players available, so he goes overvalued. So it seems like there never is really a strategy that one size fits all when it comes to nominating a player because you really don't know what other owners are thinking and and who they're targeting. Yeah, there's a lot of auction strategy and theories that really it makes no difference. It's like... You're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If, you know you can try to you can try to slip a cheap player through early. I mean you can be in the the first or second round of an auction. You can bring up a guy that you think you can get for a dollar and you bid a dollar and somebody else goes too. And had you waited till the end when everybody's out of money and out of positions, you could have got him for a dollar. On the other hand, sometimes you know it, what you said. Sometimes if it's the last, you know one of the last $10 players available and people have money to spend, he could go for 13 if you wait till the end. So a, there's a lot, I, I write, you know, some of the strategies that I write about in the book, a lot of them, I say, look, it can happen this way or it can happen this way, so it really doesn't matter. You, you know, you can win or lose. Yeah, I mean, there's so much theory, and the theory itself makes sense, but in practice, you just never know because you're dealing with a different group of owners and you don't know what they're going to think. So... You think, oh, when there's money that is available early on, you don't want to bring up your sleeper because everybody's going to bid on him, but that's not necessarily the case. They might be holding on their, to their money for a better player, but you just don't know because if everybody likes that same sleeper, then he's going to go for overvalue. If everybody does not, he's going to go for undervalue, and that's going to be the case no matter when you nominate that player. So again, it's completely under, unpredictable, so even though in theory it makes sense, in practice, it never ends up working out exactly how you expect. Yeah, it also comes back to to my tracking, to my looking at what other people value players at. If I if I think a guy is, you know, maybe I have a quote unquote sleeper who I think is going to be worth fifteen dollars, and I look at Roto World and Baseball HQ and some other places, and they've all got him at also have him at fifteen dollars. Well, then he's not really a sleeper, you know, because everybody thinks he's worth fifteen. So. Whenever I bring him up in the auction, isn't really maybe going to matter because other people think he's worth as much as I do. Uh, yeah, that's the, the the interesting thing though that um, is kind of the converse, the, the the bus. I mean, I feel like you 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 when you when you're setting up that list of, of possible values, there's the opposite, which is the list of possible busts, which are players. I mean, you had Derek Jeter as an example. That wasn't very stark. That was where you thought he was worth about 20 and everybody else thought maybe 22, 23. But, you know, guys like that. 
I mean, I don't, I don't see the problem with nominating those guys early. I mean, the, the, the less money that there is at the table, the better for you. And, and you, you've, you've seen, I mean, if, if people don't go up to 23, then you can stay in on him if you, if you like him. But, you know, uh, I feel like if you think that this guy's going to be a bust and other people are going to want to uh, pay more for him, why not throw him early and, and get that money out? Well, one of the one of the sections that I have in the book is has a subheading that nominate, nominating is an advantage. You know, I think that when it's your turn to nominate a player, that's an advantage you have. And I mostly am nominating a, a specific player for a specific reason. Um, and and the reason isn't just like, well, I'm going to nominate some you know thirty dollar player so I can get money out. Um, there's um, you know, there may be a couple of pitchers that I think are my best options to get a good deal, and maybe one of them I think is a little bit better option than the second one. So I would want to get the first one nominated before the second guy so that I can see what happens. Because if the second guy comes out first, then I have to make a decision without knowing what was going to happen with the first guy. If the, did that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, and you, and you gave examples in the book of... Yeah. You know, he, he's your secondary. If you don't get this guy, then you go for him, and you have to decide which order to nominate. And again, I was just amazed about the thought that you put into this because I can't imagine very many other fantasy owners thinking about it this way. And it was just cool to read, and it completely um, explains your success. Nice. Um yeah, one of the, one of the the other things with the the auction strategy is people, you know, people. Some people think, well, I'm just gonna, you know, like Eno said, you know, bring out a high value player to get money out on the table, and I'm just gonna sit back and let people spend their money. And what happens though is, if if there's a good deal, you know, take it. I mean, if if I bring up Miguel Cabrera and I think he's worth thirty five dollars, and pe- and the bidding's going to forty dollars. I'm happy to see somebody spend forty dollars for a guy that I think is worth thirty-five dollars. But if if you know somebody brings up Miguel Cabrera and the bidding you know is stopping at thirty-five dollars and I can buy him for thirty-five, you know I'm I'm going to buy him if it's a good deal. I'm not going to say oh well, I want to let people spend their money. I'll, you know you don't want to pass up on a good deal just because it's early and you want people to spend their money. The other thing is. If other people are spending, some people say, "Well, I want to let you know get money out of the table, and everybody spent money, and then they get low on money, and now I'm in control. You know, I can control the end game because I have money, and nobody else does." Well, what good does that do you? You know, you have extra money to spend, and you end up spending twelve dollars on a player who's worth ten dollars, and six dollars on somebody who's worth five, and you know that I don't, I don't uh, want to have that kind of control. One of the strategies that I like doing, and and this is I feel like probably more appropriate for a shallower league. So this is in my 12-team mixed auction. Is I like looking at my negatively valued players, maybe minus a dollar, minus two dollars, guys that I'm not valuing in the positive player pool, but I think are going to be overvalued, and other players are going to be bidding on. So I think Ryan Howard may have been an example. I had him at minus a dollar or two dollars last year, but let's just use him as an example. If I nominate him early, out of 11 other owners, there's no way that nobody else is going to be willing to bid $2 on a guy like Ryan Howard. So I'm going to nominate a guy who I think is worth negative value and stick a negatively valued 
hitter on somebody else's team. So, I mean, that's a positive because that reduces the value of his team. Plus, that's one more positive value player I get to step up in the end game. Maybe instead of the end game, uh, me being down to a $1 player, that means that the worst available player now is $2. So, I do that strategy a lot. And I think you may have kind of talked about that kind of a concept where you step up in value in the, in the bottom tier players that you'd be left up uh, left with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, I'd mentioned that in the mixed options um, chapter. Yeah, so that's definitely a strategy I like, and that relates to yeah, and, throwing uh, out overvalued players. I mean, that's even where, you know, it's like <clears throat> the, um, the subheading for that section was, I think, LOL. Yeah. Because, you know, just like I... I'll bring up a guy for a dollar that I know shouldn't even, you know, be be bought for a dollar, and then somebody else will immediately bid too. Yeah, and pitchers are definitely even easier than hitters to do that because we definitely differ in valuation of pitchers a lot more than hitters, and so there's going to be a lot of minus one, minus two dollar guys I value that other people are going to like, and and so you can do that all day with negatively valued pitchers. Yeah, part of part of it is what you say, the difference of opinion, but the other part is there are a lot of people that don't understand the mechanics of mixed auction prices. So if you have a guy, you know, that maybe is worth ten dollars in a mono league and you bring him up in a mixed auction for a dollar, you know, people think, oh well, this guy's worth ten dollars, I'm gonna bid two. And they don't you know, they're not getting the concept that in a mixed auction um, he's only worth a dollar, or maybe he's not even worth a dollar. Yeah, and speaking, I'm glad that was a, this is a good transition into my next question because you mentioned minor league versus mixed leagues and their, the difference in prices. And that was something from the book that I was very confused about. You actually use minor league values in your mixed league auctions. Why wouldn't you just recalculate for mixed leagues? But I, I think I know the answer. You mentioned it is because in your experience, your valuation system for mixed leagues does not match up with reality when running it for a mixed league versus a mono league. Which brings me to asking if you think it's more important for values to conform to reality or to represent a player's true worth. Well, you have to know what to bid. So, like, if you you can you can run, and it's not just you know if I run mixed league values, it's any anybody who runs mixed league values. You cannot. It is impossible to produce sensible mixed league values um, as far as for the purposes of an auction. What, what I mean is, you you can you can design your value formula to say, okay, what is the correct value for a mixed auction player and theoretically you have the correct value but when it comes to an auction it does you no good because it's got like nothing to do with what people are actually going to bid at an auction at a mixed auction because um, you have more um, I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not how to sh sure how to explain this really quickly but um, if you if you have say a forty dollars say Miguel Cabrera is worth forty dollars in a, in an AO only league, and then you convert it to a mixed auction formula, um, so now he's gonna he's gonna go down in in well actually it depends how you do it some he goes down some he doesn't but the the bottom line is what you get is useless values if you if you look at anybody who produced 
produces mixed auction values, including myself, and then you take that to an auction and you try to bid based on, on those values, it's just not um, it's just not the reality of what happens in the bidding. Yeah, I, I, I kind of somewhat understand. It was just a little confusing to me that you would use the mono leagues and then adjust them rather than just rerunning it for a mixed league. Yeah, well, because as I said, when you rerun it for a mixed league, you get you get values that are. Oh, um, uh, well, well, I think I see. Well, it's it's because like I'm using an SGP based formula, and you know the 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 SGPs are a little different for a mixed league than for a mono league. So one of the reasons I do that is I'm I'm getting like a more proper value for a home run or a stolen base or whatever because I'm using SGPs from a mixed league. What's SGP again? Um, standing gain points. Mm. It's it's it, it's one of the one of the um, you know ways of, of doing player value. Um, it, I, I describe it in my book. Also, Art McGee wrote a book about it, and it's based on looking at the his, the historical uh, values of like how many home runs did it take to gain one point in the standings, or how many stolen bases did it take to gain one point in the standings. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then another kind of a semantic question that was slightly confusing is that you discussed the snake draft standard curve that you calculate. Um, but isn't that the same as the positional dollar value boost evaluation system automatically includes when calculating values? So basically, in this, this is for snake draft values. And so you are adding a basically like a, a positional boost. So if a, uh, a hitter was a catcher, then he's going to get this standard curve boost that you calculate but when you run SGP valuation for an auction, then their final dollar value already accounts for their position. So why – is this the same concept and you're just naming it differently for a, a snake draft versus an auction? Um, it's similar, yeah. Um. So, I mean, don't you calculate values the same way for a snake draft than just – you know, rank them in descending order, and the the actual dollar value obviously isn't as important because you're not bidding; you're just selecting players. But you're using the same dollar values, or at least the same methodology, I would think. Yeah, well, it's 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 you know, my way of comparing is a say is a twenty dollar shortstop better to take than say an eighteen dollar outfielder. You know, or, or um, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Is a $20 shortstop better to take than like a $22 outfielder? Some people think, you know, well, there's position scarcity for middle infielders, so I'm going to grab, uh, I'm going to grab a middle infielder before a better outfielder. And the question is, well, how do you decide? You know, is it is a $20 shortstop better than a $22 outfielder? Is he better than a $25 outfielder? Um, so my curve is just. In exact, you know, for me, it's an exact way of comparing the difference between positions. Right, but when you value players for, let's say, tout wars, those dollar values already account for the hitter's position, don't they? Yeah, they do, but this, this, the scarcity aspect of it is you have to look at what's available at the end. Like the, the you know, 24th catcher 
in a 12-team two-catcher league or the 36th middle infielder in a in a 12-team league. You got the, the value of the last player available in your player pool is where I compare to see if there's any scarcity. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so that is that's something I was I was thinking about. Some of the things that you talk about, um, you know, sounding silly at, at, an, at a draft, an auction draft, about position scarcity or pitchers being risky and stuff like that. Some of that uh, I feel like has got to be baked into your to your values a little bit. So you know, we found by our research that pitchers hit the DL more often uh, than hitters, and they stay longer once they're on the DL. So that probably means, uh, along with the way that you split your auction values in terms of hitters and pitchers, that that sort of thing might be baked into your values, and so that's why you just trust your values as opposed to saying, "Well, I have Gio Gonzalez valued at twenty-five bucks, but he's a pitcher, so I don't want to go above twenty-three or twenty-two or something." It's already baked into your values, so you just have to trust your values, right? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, your your Projected statistics should account for the likelihood of an injury. I mean, you know, now, you know, I'm saying theoretically here because in practice it's you know pretty much impossible to do this perfectly. But right. a you know a, a, whatever you project Gio Gonzalez is going to produce for the year should include his injury risk or you know the general injury risk for pitchers in general. It should include if somebody's you know 20, age 27 and you think he can get better or he pitches in a good pitching park or a bad pitching park or a good team or bad team. A projected stat should, should theoretically take all that into account and say what's the most likely outcome or like what's the over-under if Gio Gonzalez pitched this year a hundred a hundred years. What would his the over under value be on all those hundred years that he pitched? And then you or, or projected stats. I'm talking about. And then you take the projected stats and you put that into an intelligently done value formula and you come up with a value. And if it's twenty five dollars, it's twenty five dollars. Yeah. Now what yeah. I find what you know, what I find for me is you know I think people people tend to not go as high and on starting pitchers um, because you know there maybe they're using a little bit different value formula maybe it's because of what Eno's saying that they just think pitchers are a little risky and they don't want to spend too much so um, you know if, if I think Gio Gonzalez is worth twenty five dollars um, I'm probably not going to buy him for twenty four dollars thinking I got a good deal because I know that most likely uh, you know starting pitcher I should be able to get a better a better deal than that. And there's there's no real good way to to uh, decide your pitcher hitter split other than you know trial and error, right? Well, the I think the important thing is that you have to realize it's it's relative, and this is one of the things I discovered more myself in writing the book. I learned a lot writing this book because I was I really had to look at everything I was doing, um, and if if I think the um, the standard average value formula splits the hitter pitcher values about 6733. Um, actually, wait, I may have that wrong. It may be 6931 because I can't remember offhand. But whatever it is, if if let's say if you're using your own value formula and you're putting 67% into the hitting 
as opposed to thir- and 33 percent of pitching, as opposed to say going 69-31, then your hitter values are going to be a little less or a little more, and your pitcher values are going to be a little less or a little more. So you just have to kind of keep that in mind when you're bidding, um, as far as whether you're willing to go full price or you're trying to get a dollar off of your players or two dollars off. If you're putting more money into pitching, that you're going to be looking to get better discounts because you're putting you're valuing them higher than the average person. Mm-hmm. You know, so if somebody if somebody is at a snake draft and they think Clayton Kershaw should be the number one overall pick, and every, and everybody else thinks he should be like late first round, it's probably because in their the formula they're using is putting more money into pitching than everybody else. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Sounds like it might be a good idea to sort of run at a couple different splits just so you you have an idea of what people might be coming to the table with. Yeah, and again, um, when I when I look at other people's values, you know, that gives me an idea of what range other people are looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that still boggles my mind, and I think you also mentioned this in the book, was the concept of best available player. And, and this is basically used in a snake draft. And so I always wondered why the assumption that this doesn't factor in position. So, for example, the best player available, in my eyes, should be determined after calculating values, which already bakes in the player's value. So when I'm in a snake draft, the player at the top of my board is the best available player, and I'm not comparing that choice to a method that also includes position or scarcity. So, I mean, that's already included in the player's value. So you'll see all the time, oh, well, you know, I think that the best player available is Chris Davis, but I decided to draft Robinson Cano due to position. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If the best available player is Chris Davis, that should already account for the fact that he's a first baseman, while Robinson Cano is valued lower, which already bakes in the fact that he's a second baseman. So how could it be two separate valuations that you're looking at, a best player available and one that includes position. The best player available should already include the valuation boost or reduction due to position. Is this just a matter of semantics or am I missing something here? Um, that's a good question. I'm getting a little confused. <laughs> um, I, I confuse it, myself when trying yeah. to explain this as well. Um, when you say the best when, player available, when, you, when you're when you're when you're doing a when you're doing a value formula, I mean it, it depends a little bit how you do your value formula, um, but you're putting in statistics and coming up with a value, and you're not accounting at that point for any difference in position. Um, and by by the way, something I said earlier when I said that um, about putting the the uh, mixed league. That I use mixed, uh, I use for mixed league. I use minor league prices as a guide, but I put it into a mixed league uh, formula because of the SGPs are different different for mixed league. By the way, that's true for whatever value formula that you use. Um, the the numbers are going to be a little different if you're using a mixed league than a than a minor league. So you'd want to do that no matter what kind of formula you're using. But if you if you put in all like if you put in all of the projected stats and you come up with a value for players and then you look at your your 24 best catchers for a 12-team league and your 24th best catcher 
has a value maybe of negative two dollars well your last catcher really has to be worth a dollar so what you have to do essentially is you have to add three dollars to the catchers to allow for that so if you're in a snake draft and you've got a you know a choice between a twenty dollar outfielder and a nineteen dollar catcher well the catcher is going to be better because you have to add three dollars to that catcher so that now, he's not really a nineteen dollar catcher he's really a twenty two dollar catcher right and now you know it, you can you can make that adjustment in your in your value formula you know you, you can you can in your value formula you can say okay everybody who's a catcher at three dollars and when you print it out now you've got that guy listed as twenty two dollars right or so, you can do it the other way and just print it out you know my 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 uh, my database is actually so old and unsophisticated that for me I have to do it manually. I have to just print out the catcher at nineteen dollars and know that he's really worth all the catchers are really worth three dollars more or whatever it is. Right. So I guess it's just dependent upon how you value players because the way I do it, I don't I don't add a boost after the fact. It's already baked in in my initial valuation. So that's why it never made sense to me. But I guess the best player available versus the due to position. You can print out your values where Chris Davis is 20, Cano is, let's say, 19, and so Davis is best available. But once you bake in the $3 boost, let's say, for a second baseman, Cano becomes $22, and when you factor in position. Right, but things I see, I can't, I can't bake that into my projections because until I can look at the entire player pool and see what is the value of the 24th catcher and the and the the last middle infielder and the last corner infielder and the last outfielder until I can see that I don't know what the what the the boost is going to be right yeah for me I guess it's just a semantic thing because then I would yeah. never call Chris Davis the best player available because you you have to give the positional boost to a Robinson Cano right. if he's worth 22 after the positional boost he's the best player available Chris Davis is not so that's just something that always confused me. Why Davis would be called the best player available? He's not. Right, right. Well, some people. I mean, some people do that. Some people just look at the dollar value and they just think, okay, I'm going to take the best player available based on the dollar value. And then other people are adding in for you know their concept of position scarcity and you know taking Cano instead of Davis or whatever because of position scarcity. But um, you know, one one thing that I find is that there is rarely um, any position scarcity for middle infielders. Um, in fact, there, there's just as likely to be a little bit of scarcity for a corner infielder as opposed to a middle infielder. It's pretty much non-existent. Yeah, I you know, agree. Position scarcity for anybody. Catchers, there is definitely position scarcity. Um, but anything else, pretty much no. Yeah, I mean, the boost that I find for a middle infielder is usually about a buck, maybe a dollar fifty. And and that's small. Catchers definitely have a huge position scarcity because if they weren't catcher, let's say uh, a Joe Maurer or uh whoever else, a Matt Weeders, they would be like ten dollar players. But with the position scarcity accounted for, Joe Maurer becomes a twenty dollar plus player. And and you don't get that anywhere else. Yeah, I mean it's simple math on and for AL only is this, you know if you have two catchers, you're you're looking for 20 or 24 uh, catchers and uh, they're not 20 or 24 starting catchers. So, you right. know, 
I was I was worried. We're kind of going into so much detail here. I was kind of thinking about, oh man, are we talking too much? And I still think I think that book is so great that you know it doesn't matter. We we've <laughs> just scratched the surface. There's a lot more in this book, so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't worry that uh, we we've covered everything. But one last thing that I was thinking about was um, you talk about not really wanting to punt. Um, and you know, in Roto, I, I, I'm 100% agreement because um, you just need points. Like you said, you want to dominate, but you just need points in every every category, and you need as many points as you can get. So I, I, I can't imagine uh, punting a category. But in head-to-head, I don't know how much you play. Uh, in head-to-head, it seems like it's a much more viable strategy, just because you can really gain an, an advantage in the other uh, weekly categories, and it's it's not as much of a penalty to lose a category every week. Yeah, well, when I when I wrote that, I wasn't really thinking in terms of head to head, but the the main thing is what I, what I say is, um, in general, I don't like the idea of punting. But if you are going to punt, what I say is only punt saves because you can easily put together a team that doesn't have saves. But any other category, you can't do that. Let's if you want to if you want to punt stolen bases, you're still going to draft a team that has. 40 or 50 stolen bases, even if you're trying to avoid them. Mm-hmm. And you're just wasting all that value. And you're also limiting yourself. It's like it's hard enough as it is to get good buys, but if you're going to ignore everybody who has like 15 or more stolen bases, now you're you're limiting yourself even more to try to find good buys. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And the 40 or 50 stolen bases that you accumulate are just you've wasted all that value. Yeah. You know, to interject, uh, my first ever auction league back in 2000 or 2001, I didn't come in with the plan, but I left the auction without a closer. I ended up punting saves, and I ended up winning the league. And it proves that it can be done to punt, but it's never something that I would go into an auction or a snake draft planning to do because it's just too difficult. You have to be too perfect everywhere else. Uh, and of course, this is Roto, but I agree, you know, absolutely in head to head, depending on the rules, you can definitely exploit the rules and go for a 7 3 weekly win every week, and you'd almost definitely win the league winning 7 3 every single week. So mm-hmm. there's, there's no reason why you shouldn't at least consider punting in a head to head league. All right, let's wrap things up, Larry, and to put you on the spot a little, perhaps we've already discussed this. But what do you think is the biggest mistake fantasy owners make, whether during an auction slash snake draft or during the season? Um, well, not being prepared would be the biggest one. Um, you know, I just I wouldn't dream of going into an auction or draft not being really prepared. Um, and the second one would be just kind of, you know, all the misconceptions that are out there about you know, why you should overpay for people and that, you know, if somebody's age 27, they're worth more money and, you know, all these other misconceptions that are out there. Yeah. I, there's, it, there's, there's a lot a lot of information out there. A lot of stuff has been written and talked about, and some of it is good and some of it is not good. Yeah, I completely agree. And the thing is, is the Internet has made – Everybody think that they're a fantasy expert. All you have to do is start a blog and start espousing these strategies that become gospel. And just because somebody 
has a blog doesn't make them an expert and know what they're talking about when it comes to fantasy baseball and, and auction strategies. So just beware of what you read, and there's a lot of myths that have become popular that are just going to screw you up in an auction in a, a fantasy league. And Larry's book, Winning Fantasy Baseball, will... You had like a list of like 20 myths, and you explained every single one why it was not true, which I thought was great, and I agreed with basically everything there. So thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, all right. Well, Larry, thank you so much for coming on and answering our questions. Winning Fantasy Baseball is the book. It's already Amazon's number one bestseller in the fantasy sports category of books. The book is available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and at bookstores everywhere in the U.S. and Canada, and it's available in both paperback and ebook format. For more info and reviews, visit winningfantasybaseballthebook.com. So again, thank you, Larry, for coming on. And for Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.